happy Thanksgiving. I hope everybody is enjoying their day off. Um, if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, I hope you're having a wonderful regular day. <laughs> um, I am actually not really doing much today. Um, we didn't go anywhere. We live in a town where we don't really have any, you know, close family. So we're just hanging out here, me and my husband and my dogs. So I wanted to go ahead and record my next episode because I feel like the end of this year is just getting away from me and it's making it harder and harder to sit down and record these episodes. And I have a lot of good ones coming up for Christmas time that I want to make sure that I share with you guys. So a little bit of like a sneak peek, I'm going to be doing um, Wuthering Heights, Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And then I'm going to be talking about the Nutcracker. And we're going to be talking about the ETA Hoffman and the Alexander Dumas version. Is it Dumas or Dumas? I feel like it's Dumas. But anyways. And then we're also going to talk about in that one the history of Santa Claus. So I'm really excited about that. I will have a guest on for the Christmas Carol. So if you are into Christmas, love Christmas, I love Christmas. I hope that you will stick around and subscribe. Um, I'm on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, all of those. So please subscribe. And if you want to go ahead and give me, you know, from some five stars, <laughs> that would be awesome. Um, but this one is going to be is about 1984 and George Orwell. Um, so again, since this is still kind of new, I just wanted to kind of give a recap of how I do these episodes. I'm going to talk about the author and then I'm going to give you a summary of the book. I'm going to read some of the book and then we're going to talk about writing style, what I thought of the book, essentially a book review. So we're going to go ahead and get started with um, the history of George Orwell. His history is very, very, um, it like in depth, it has a ton of history. So there's no way that I can go through all of his history without this being like a two hour episode. So I'm going to skip around. I'm going to skip a little bit. I'm going to talk more about his early um, years. And then I'm going to kind of just fill in some parts in there. Because um, I really want to make sure that I get some time to talk about the book. So George Orwell was born June 25th, 1903 as Eric Arthur Blair in British India. I'm going to refer to him as Orwell the entire time. He does change his name for um, the, for, you know, whenever he publishes his first book, um, Animal Farm. So, um, but I'm just going to call him Orwell so we don't get confused. But again, his original name was Eric Arthur Blair. He described his family as lower upper middle class. His father worked in the opium department of the Indian Civil Service. He had two sisters um, and, of course, a mother. And when Orwell was nine, I'm sorry, one year old, his mother took him and one of his sisters to England. And from then on, Orwell did not see his father until 1912. Orwell went to a convent school in Henley-on-Thames. It was Roman Catholic and run by French Ursuline nuns who had been exiled from France after the Catholic education was banned in 1905 due to the Dreyfus affair. Orwell's mother wanted him to go to a public school, which her brother ended up making an arrangement for him to go to St. Cyprian School in East Sussex, where he went to school for five years, um, returning only home for holidays. 
Orwell wrote two poems that were published in the Henley and South Oxfordshire Standard. He came in second to the Harrow History Prize and had his work praised and earned scholarships to Wellington and Eton. In 1916, he went to Wellington where he spent one term. Um, a place then became available for him at Eton as a King Scholar where he went to school until 1921. While at Eton, he worked with Roger Miners and created a college magazine called the Election Times. In December 1921, Orwell left Eton and joined his family in Suffolk, where he was enrolled at a crammer, uh, which is an institution that prepares people for an examination um, intensively over a short period of time. And he learned mostly about the classics, English, and history. He passed the exam, um, seventh out of 26 other candidates who passed, so very smart. Um, October 1922, he joined the Indian Imperial Police in Burma, which I feel like is a complete like flip-flop of what he was doing before. In 1924, he was assigned to a post in Syrium where the Burma Oil Company refinery was. He described Syrium as that the surrounding land was a barren waste. All vegetation was killed off by the fumes of sulfur dioxide pouring out day and night from the refinery. Orwell would often go to the neighboring town Rangoon to visit bookshops, eat, and get away from the basic routine of police life. Orwell spent much of his time alone, reading, attending churches of the Karen ethnic group, and um, was also able to learn the Burmese language. While in Burman, he adopted the pencil mustache when before he had the normal toothbrush mustache of that time. He also got some tattoos. He got some small blue circles on each knuckle, which according to the Burmese, believes that these tattoos protected against bullets and snake bites. In 1927, he was assigned to Katha in Upper Burman, where he contracted dang fever, um, which is a mosquito-borne viral disease that gives symptoms of high fever, rash, muscle and joint pain, and in severe cases, bleeding and shock. Because of the fever, he was able to take a holiday in Cornwall, England in September 1927, which at that time he resigned from the police and worked to become a writer. He worked on his novel Burmese Days, which he drew from his experiences, and in 1927 he moved to London, where he moved into a room at Portobello Road. Orwell admired Jack London and led him to explore the poorer areas of London. He would use the name P.S. Burton, dressed down, um, it said that he would also dress as a tramp and make no concessions to middle class, which he used these experience to publish, publish an essay called The Spike, which was then in his first book, Down and Out in Paris and London. In 1928, he moved to Paris, where he lived in the working class district in the 5th arrondissement. This is when he continued to write Burmese Days. He also worked as a journalist and published articles in Monde and wrote three pieces over unemployment, a day in the life of a tramp, and beggars of London. In 1929, he became very ill and was treated at a free hospital where students were trained. From that, he wrote an essay called How the Poor Die, which was published in 1946, so a lot later. During this time, he was robbed um, and lost all of his money, which then he started doing just like menial jobs to get by. December 1929, he returned to England to his parents in Southwold, where he remained for the next five years. 1932, he became a teacher at the Hawthorns High School, a school for boys. He was also writing some essays and books during these times. In August 1932, he prepared to have Down and Out in Paris and London published, 
but wanted to have it under a different name to save any embarrassment from his family. Sorry, earlier I said Animal Farm, but after I said that, I was like, nope, that's not right. Um, he, because of him being like a dressing as a tramp and stuff, he didn't want it to be related to his family. So to the publisher, he offered the names P.S. Burton, which is what he used whenever he was um, down in those poor parts of London. Uh, Kenneth Miles, George Orwell, and H. Lewis Always. So, of course, George Orwell was chosen because it was a good round English name. Down and Out in Paris and London was published January 1933. In 1936, Orwell was a part of the military in the Spanish Civil War, where he had a lot of negative experiences and was also shot in the throat, which affected his voice. He had to go through, you know, of course, a lot of medical procedures to get that fixed. Um, he returned to England in 1937, where he tried to write of his experiences of the war, and um, most of those, though, were rejected, um, or he was threatened with libel action, so he didn't really publish any of those. During World War II, he was declared unfit for military service, but found an opportunity to become involved by joining the Home Guard. In 1941, he was obtained for war work by the BBC Eastern Service, and when he was interviewed, he indicated that he accepted absolutely the need for propaganda to be directed by the government and stressed that in wartime, discipline and the execution of government policy was essential. In 1943, he resigned from the BBC and started writing Animal Farm. He was also the literary editor at the Tribune and was writing reviews for other magazines as well. In 1944, he attempted to publish Animal Farm, but was refused because they considered it an attack on the Soviet regime, which was a crucial ally in the war. Secker and Warburg, um, a publishing company, agreed to publish Animal Farm, and it appeared in print in 1945. Animal Farm had a resonance in the post-war climate and had a worldwide success. 1946, he lived in London and was swamped with work. He was working so many things. Um, this year had one of the coldest British winters, and with a shortage of fuel, he burned his furniture and child's toys, which I didn't really go over a lot of his personal life. He was married, um, had a child. There was some stuff of him like traveling back and forth that I didn't really go into. Of course, if you're more interested, please feel free to go read up on him. Um, along with the heavy smog, his health started declining. During this time, he wrote 1984 um, through to the year 1947, where he became ill and was diagnosed with tuberculosis. He finished his manuscript in 1948, then published in 1949, um, and it had immediate popu popularity. January 21st, 1950, um, he was still battling, um, you know, being ill and having TB. And um, during that time in 1950, his artery burst in his lungs and it killed him at age 46. So again, I, you know, you can tell from his history that he took in a lot of everything that he experienced and really took advantage of just like moving from place to place to place to experience all these things and write about it. Um, he wrote hundreds of essays and articles. Um, he wrote nine books overall. And um, in his essay, Politics in English Language, Orwell wrote about the importance of precise and clear language, arguing that vague writing can be used as a powerful tool of political manipulation because it shapes the way we think. In that essay, Orwell provides six rules for writers. 
So one is never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech, which you're used to seeing in print. Number two, never use a long word where a short one will do. Number three, if it's possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Number four, never use the passive where you can use the active. Five, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. And six, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. So when the book was first published, it was a dark green color. In the background, it had 1984 in numbers. And then over it, it had George Orwell and then 1984 um, all in lowercase in letters. And then underneath it said a novel. The one that I have is a Signet Classic. It's the one that I feel like is most popular. It's white with the blue eyeball. Um, this one was published in 1977, but I feel this is the one that I see most of all with Signet Classics. Um, 1984 is a dystopian social science fiction novel. 1984 centers around totalitarianism, mass surveillance, and repressive regimentation of persons and behaviors within society. So I'm going to go ahead real quick and I'm going to read the first page like I normally do. So we'll go ahead and get right into that. It was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. Winston Smith, his chin nuzzled into his breast into an effort to escape the vile wind, slipped quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions, though not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of gritty dust from entering along with him. The hallway smelt of boiled cabbage and old rag mats. At one end of it was a colored poster, too large for indoor display, had been tacked to the wall. It depicted simply an enormous face, more than a meter wide, the face of a man of 45 with a heavy black mustache and ruggedly handsome features. Winston made for the stairs. It was no use trying to lift. Even at the best of times, it was seldom working, and at present, the electric current was cut off during daylight hours. It was part of the economy drive in preparation for hate week. The flat was seven flights up and Winston, who was 39 and had a varicose ulcer with his right ankle, went slowly, resting several times on the way. On each landing opposite the lift shaft, the poster with the enormous face gazed from the wall. It was one of those pictures which are so contrived that the eyes follow you about when you move. Big Brother is watching you, the caption beneath it ran. Inside the flat, a fruity voice was reading out a list of figures which had something to do with the production of pig iron. The voice came from an oblong metal plaque like a dulled mirror which formed part of the surface of the right-hand wall. Winston turned to switch and the voice sank somewhat, though the words were still distinguishable. The instrument, the telescreen it was called, could be dimmed, but there was no way of shutting it off completely. He moved over to the window, a smallish, frail figure, the meagerness of his body merely emphasized by the blue overalls, which were the uniform of the party. His hair was very fair, his face naturally sanguine, his skin roughened by coarse soap and blunt razor blades and the cold of winter that had just ended. Outside, even through the shut window pane, the world looked cold. Down in the street, little eddies of wind were whirling dust in torn paper into spirals, and though the sun was shining and the sky was a harsh blue, there seemed to be no color in anything except the posters that were plastered everywhere. The black mustachioed face gazed down from every commanding corner. 
There was one on the house front immediately opposite. Big brother is watching you, the caption said, while the dark eyes looked deep into Winston's own. Down at the street level, another poster, torn at one corner, flapped fitfully in the wind, alternately covering and uncovering the single word Ingsoc. In the far distance, a helicopter skimmed down between the roofs, hovered for an instant like a blue bottle, and darted away again with a curving flight. It was the police patrol snooping into people's windows. The patrols did not matter, however, only the thought police mattered. Behind Winston's back, the voice from the telescreen was still babbling away from about pig iron and the overfulfillment of the ninth three-year plan. The telescreen revised and transmitted simultaneously. Any sound that Winston made above the level of a very low whisper would be picked up by it. Moreover, so long as he remained within the field of vision which the metal plaque commanded, he could be seen as well as heard. There was, of course, no way of knowing whether you were being watched at any given moment. How often or on what system the thought police plugged in on any individual wire was guesswork. It was even conceivable that they watched everybody all the time. But at any rate, they could plug in your wire whenever they wanted to. You had to live, did live, from habit that became instinct in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard and except in darkness, every movement scrutinized. So Winston Smith lives in the future year of 1984, where the world around him is heavily controlled by government surveillance, propaganda, and essentially ruined by war. He lives in Great Britain, which is also known um, as Airstrip One, and it has three provinces. The one Winston living in is called Oce Oceana. The provinces are controlled by Big Brother, who controls the Thought Police. Um, so the Thought Police punishes individuality and independent thinking. The entire party is controlled by ideology of Ingsoc or English socialism. And there are three ministries. So the Ministry of Plenty, which controls food, production, um, and rations to people. So we're not just talking about they control like the production of food. We're talking about everybody is on essentially like food stamps and they're only allowed to get a certain amount of things. So like there's one part it talks about where everybody is rationed like a very small amount of chocolate. You can't just go buy yourself a candy bar. You can only get a certain amount of chocolate every year. Um, Things that we can, we take for granted, like coffee, um, lower class people are not allowed to have coffee. It's at all. It's not a thing. You can't have like wine. So it's essentially like water. Um, everything is rationed. It doesn't matter who you are. It's rationed. Unless of course you're like the rich. So next is the ministry of truth. They control information, news, entertainment, education, and the arts. So the government controls literally everything that you watch, um, everything that you go see, all of the information, news, it all comes from one person. And then you have the Ministry of Love, which identifies, monitors, arrests, and re-educates lawbreakers. So they're like, I know they have the thought police, but they're like, after the, after you're arrested and you're punished, that's ministry of love, which it's crazy that it's called ministry of love. So you can wonder how people could honestly like live this way. Um, when you start the book, it just sounds horrible. It sounds just so depressing. And it really makes you think like, how in the heck did they get here and say, okay, yeah, I'm fine living this way. 
But the reason being is because history has been changed by the ministry of truth to make it sound like the world they lived in before was like way better. So I'm going to read um, a part in here about kind of what they said the world was before. So the episode, I'm sorry, the episode before that I did 1984, Ray Bradbury, same thing. They changed history. They said that Benjamin Franklin created the first fireman. Now, yes, he created the first fire department, but they just changed history altogether to make it sound like the way that life is now is way better. So let me read this, um, this part here that says it's from like a children's history textbook. In the old days before the glorious revolution, London was not the beautiful city that we know today. It was a dark, dirty, miserable place where hardly anybody had enough to eat and where hundreds and thousands of poor people had no boots on their feet and not even a roof to sleep under. Children no older than you are hard at work 12 hours a day for cruel masters who flogged them with whips if they worked too slowly and fed them on nothing but stale bread crust and water. But in among all these terrible poverties were just a few great big beautiful houses that were lived in by rich men who had as many as 30 servants to look after them. These rich men were called capitalists. They were fat, ugly men with wicked faces like the one in the picture on the opposite page. You can see that he's dressed in a long black coat, which is called a frock coat, and a queer shiny hat shaved like a stovepipe, which was also called a top hat. This was the uniform of the capitalists, and no one else was allowed to wear it. The capitalists owned everything in the world, and everyone else was their slave. They owned all the land, all the houses, all the factories, and all the money. If anyone disobeyed them, they could throw him into prison, or they could take his job away and starve him to death. When an ordinary person spoke to a capitalist, he had to cringe and bow to him and take off his cap and address him as sir. The chief of all the capitalists was called the king. So along with that little brief history um, from the children's textbook, there's another part that I want to read that basically talks about how with the control of the government and all of the ministries that you have no ideas of your own that whatever you're told is basically what it is. You have no common sense. You have no opinions. Um, there's a big part in the book that they explain that if the government tells you two plus two is five, but you know that two plus two is four, that it's two plus two is five and that's it. It doesn't matter what you think. It's two plus two is five. So if they come out and say, this is how it is, that is exactly what you believe without any argument. So I'm going to go into that, but I feel like that's a real like kind of jarring part of the book of the fact that people just don't think for themselves. So I'm going to go ahead and read that real quick. He picked up the children's history book and looked at the portrait of Big Brother, which formed its front taste piece. The hypnotic eyes gazed into his own. It was as though some huge force was pressing down upon you, something that penetrated inside your skull, battering against your brain, frightening you out of your beliefs, persuading you almost to deny the evidence of your senses. In the end, the party would announce that two and two made five, and you would have to believe it. It was inevitable that they should make that claim sooner or later. The logic of their position demanded it. Not merely the validity of experience, but the very existence of external reality was tactically denied by your philosophy. 
The hearsay of hearsays was common sense. And what was terrifying was not that they would kill you for thinking otherwise, but that they might be right. For after all, how do we know that two and two make four or that the force of gravity works or that the past is unchangeable? If both the past and the external world exist only in the mind, and if the mind itself is controllable, what, when? So that gives you a little bit like brief of how their history works and how they look at it. Um, they look at it from a perspective of, of course, everything is like high, middle, and low, which I know that's kind of how America is, except for I feel like the way that they describe it is to make it sound bad. And of course, their primary goal as the Ministry of Truth is to change, lie, and finagle the truth to make it sound like what someone has currently is way better than what it was before. So before I go into what Winston does for a living is I want to kind of give you like an example of the life of someone in this book in 1984. So if you can imagine you have a job, but you are not in control of your pay. You're basically told whatever you get paid. You are picked what your job is. So you don't really have any kind of aspirations. You're picked where you live. So he lives in like an apartment complex and it's, he, you know, goes home. He's monitored when he's at home by the telescreen microphones. Everything that you do is broadcast and watched by the government. So he's at home. He goes to work where he's monitored. Um, everything he does, his lunch break, walking to his desk, sitting at his desk, he's monitored. He eats the same thing every day and everything is basically off of like protein. So there's no, it tastes good. You know, I think I'm going to have a burger today. It's whatever they give you to eat. Um, and there's one part it talks about, they get these little pills um, that are like health reasons, but it's like they get a drink, their food and this pill that they eat every single day. And there's part in the books where it talks about how awful it is, but he does that. And then every day they have like exercise sessions. Um, and then they have where they watch the, the TV for two minutes. Um, and then he goes back to work and then he goes home. Same thing. He's watched the entire time and then he just starts it over again. So that sounds, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty awful to me. So Winston is a rank and file worker and a party member he balances his daily life between home life, which is monitored by telescreens, um, which those telescreens are the two-way televisions and hidden microphones. And then his work life, which consists of him being of the outer party, working at the Ministry of Truth, where he rewrites historical records to fit with the current plans and wants of Big Brother, and then destroys the originals through what's called a memory hole. So I'm going to go ahead and read this part that talks about kind of... Um, what he does at his job. Winston dialed back numbers on the telescreen and called for the appropriate issues of the times, which slid out the pneumatic tube only after a few minutes delay. The messages he had received referred to articles or news items, which for one reason or another, it was thought necessary to alter or as the official phrase had it to rectify. For example, it appeared from the times of the 17th of March that big brother in his speech of the previous day, had predicted that the South Indian front would remain quiet, but that a Eurasian offense would shortly be launched in the North Africa. 
As it happened, the Eurasian High Command had launched its offensive in South India and left North Africa alone. It was therefore necessary to rewrite a paragraph of Big Brother's speech in such a way as to make him predict the thing that actually happened. Or again, the Times of the 19th of December had published the official forecast of the output of various classes of consumption goods in the fourth quarter of 1983, which was also the sixth quarter of the ninth three-year plan. Today's issue contained a statement of the actual output from which it appeared that the forecasts were in every instance grossly wrong. Winston's job was to rectify the original figures by making them agree with the later ones. As for the third message, it referred to a very simple error which could be set right in a couple minutes. As short a time ago as February, the Ministry of Plenty had issued a promise, um, a categorical pledge were the official words, that there would be no reduction of the chocolate ration during 1984. Actually, as Winston was aware, the chocolate ration was to be reduced from 30 grams to 20 at the end of present week. All that was needed was to substitute for the original promise a warning that it would probably be necessary to reduce the ration at some time in April. So in his small amount of free time, he secretly hates the party's rule and dreams of escaping his prisoned life. He um, had one friend that he confided in who worked in the Ministry of Truth and helped develop the language and dictionary they use called Newspeak, which main purpose is to simplify language so that independent thinking is impossible. Syme is his name. Um, It says in the book that he's clearly too intelligent for what he's doing and is afraid that he'll be caught by the thought police. People who rebel against the party are said to be thought criminals. And if someone has been caught... They're um, called unpersons, so they disappear with no trace or evidence that they even existed. So when I read this book, I I really see in my head um, the like where he lives, where he works, that it's just dirty. Everything is like brown and yellow. Um, it's dark. There's no bright colors on the walls, of course, other than the Big Brother pictures. Um, I just I imagine it as being just like smog and gross and dust and dirt and everything's dirty. Nothing's clean. Um, that's just how I pictured it. And it's just, ugh, it, it sounds, when they explain like where they eat lunch at work, it, to me, it just sounds so like dark and dank and literally everything is just in my head. Everything is just brown and yellow and dirty and uh, yeah, so that's it. I just wanted to share like how I feel like it, it sounds like when you read it. So one day while strolling through a parole neighborhood on a day off, which a parole neighborhood is like a poor neighborhood, Winston visits an antique shop where he meets Mr. Charrington and he buys a diary, which he used to write down all of his thoughts of his hatred towards Big Brother, the party and everything he does. He also observes Julia, who also works at the Ministry of Truth. Um, And she's also a part of the anti-sex junior league, um, which in this part, they strongly, the government said that you don't have sex unless it's for reproduction and the higher parties don't reproduce themselves. They do it by artificial insemination. Um, Only the poorer neighborhoods (laughs) reproduce by just the old fashioned way. So she's a part of this anti-sex junior league where, Um, just basically promoting women that they don't have sex at all. Um, but 
Winston believes she's a spy and develops a severe hatred for her. He doesn't even know her. He's never talked to her. He just sees her at work, sees her at exercise, and just has just decided that he hates her. Um, he also has a boss. His name's O'Brien. And he suspects that his boss is a part of the resistance. There's a part in the book where he's at his desk working and he kind of peers over his boss and just for some reason, the way his boss is like making eye contact and talking, he just thinks he's part of the resistance. Um, the resistance is known as the brotherhood. Um, so one day at work, Julia passes him a note that says she loves him and to meet him somewhere. And so he meets her somewhere in the country. They start an affair, have sex, um, which of course is all illegal. To me, it was kind of random in the book that it was just kind of slipped in there that hey, here's this note. I love you. Meet me here. He hated her. He literally said awful things about or thought awful things about her and then just decides to just forget all of it and sleep with her and have this just ongoing affair. Um, so they start meeting in a room above the antique shop that he visited in the Pearl neighborhood. And um, they, you know, kind of go there um, on and off. Now, during all of this time, it still, you know, talks about the book and the political parts and hate week and how he goes back and forth to work and everything that he's experiencing. Um, and with Julia, I don't understand her part in this book because yes, she's a part of the anti-sex junior league. She works for the ministry and she hates all of that, but she's very apathetic about it. So when they try to talk about, you know, hatred towards um, Big Brother, she's just like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. It actually talks about every time he starts to talk about something serious, she pretends she's asleep, um, which to me is like so frustrating. Um, so, so there's a part in the book that I felt like it was, it just had a lot it meant a lot to me and I felt like it was a very heavy part of this and it's a very small part of the book. I'm going to read it. Um, and I feel like it explains Julia's just apathy to anything political. And it explains a lot about the people that live in, in this world and why they're okay with just living this meaningless life and being controlled by everything. Um, so I'm going to read that here real quick. In a way, the worldview of the party imposed itself most successfully on people incapable of understanding it. They could be made to accept the most flagrant violations of reality because they never fully grasped the enormity of what was demanded of them and were not sufficiently interested in public events to notice what was happening. By lack of understanding, they remained sane. They simply swallowed everything and what they swallowed did them no harm because it left no residue behind, just as the grain of corn will pass undigested through the body of a bird. So, of course, Orwell lived during two wars, um, during World War II. And with the Holocaust, a lot of the things that they talk about, um, I, I was very interested in the Holocaust and World War II when I was in high school and college. Um, I want to go back and, and learn more about it. It was just a very um, important time in history. And I feel like it needs to be talked about in great detail now in schools. And I, I don't know if it is. It was when I was in school. We have like a whole six weeks over it. But one of the things with the Holocaust in Germany is that 
why Hitler um, and the Nazis were so successful is because they convinced people to turn in Jews that were neck, you know, neighbors, or if they saw someone, they convinced that it was the right thing to do to turn these people in. And they didn't know any otherwise, but it's because they were just blind to anything, their own understanding of anything. They just were okay with just hearing whatever was told to them, you know, just kind of going with it and being just apathetic about all of it. So they were just simply told, hey, if you see a Jew, turn him in. And without them going, okay, they were just like, well, if that's what they want me to do, I guess that's what I'll do. And that's what created the Holocaust and got so bad is because these people were just numb to whatever was going on. And I'm, I'm just going to read this again. They simply swallowed everything and what they swallowed did them no harm because it left no residue behind. Just a grain of corn will pass undigested through the body of a bird. So if it's, well, it doesn't hurt me at all. So what's the big deal? And that just that paragraph just really bothered me um, that people can just be so apathetic. Like Julia, you know, you have Winston who hates the party and wants to change and wants to figure out the truth. And then you have Julia who is just like, ah, eh, it's whatever. So anyways, back to the summary. <laughs> um, during this affair, while at work, he was approached by O'Brien about joining the Brotherhood and sends him the book, The Theory of Practice and Oligarchical Collectivism. So the that talks about, you know, the history and um, how everything works. Honestly, during the book, the part where they read it is incredibly boring. <laughs> um, but there's one part in the book where he goes to meet O'Brien and they go to this very, very nice apartment. They're greeted at the door by a butler. Um, they go in and everything is beautiful and nice and shiny and expensive. They're given wine, things they've never had before. Um, and... Of course, O'Brien is rich, which I feel like is like red flag number one. If he was truly a part of the part of the brotherhood and a part of the resistance, he's not going to have all of this, which in the book, he says it's just kind of like a, a front. So no one um, suspects him. But there's one part where O'Brien is trying to tell them they want to be a part of the brotherhood. And, um, you know, Winston hates everything about Big Brother. And so he's just like, whatever I can do, I will do. I want to be a part of the resistance. I want to be a part of the brotherhood. And there's a part where he, O'Brien, is talking them, to them about it. I'm going to read it here real quick. O'Brien had turned himself a little in his chair so that he was facing Winston. He almost ignored Julia, seeming to take it for granted that Winston could speak for her. For a moment, the lids flitted down over his eyes. He began asking his questions in a low, expressionless voice, as though this were a routine, a sort of catechism. Most of the answers were known to him already. You're prepared to give your lives? Yes. You're prepared to commit murder? Yes. To commit acts of sabotage, which may cause the death of hundreds of innocent people? Yes. To betray your country to foreign powers? Yes. You're prepared to cheat, to forge, to blackmail, to corrupt the minds of children, to distribute habit-forming drugs, 
to encourage prostitution, to disseminate venereal diseases, to do anything which is likely to cause demoralization and weaken the power of, power of the party. Yes. If, for example, it would somehow serve our interest to throw sulfuric acid in a child's face, are you prepared to do that? Yes. You're prepared to lose your identity and live out of the rest of your life as a waiter or a dock worker? Yes. You are prepared to commit suicide if and when we order you to do so? Yes. You're prepared, the two of you, to separate and never see one another again? And this part, Julia says no. Um, and it kind of goes on from there. But before that, why would Winston join a brotherhood of resistance to make life better and commit to doing all of these things which are awful? And it really angered me when I'm reading this part that he's just blindly like, yep, yep, I, I hate my life. I will do whatever I want, you know, whatever it takes. But all of these things are awful. This is not things that you do to save people or save your country. You don't, you don't commit murder. You don't throw sulfuric acid in a child's face. You don't do those things. And I feel like Winston should have known at that point, like, wait a second, there's something kind of off here, but I don't want to give too much away. So let's kind of keep going. Winston and Julia spend more time above the antique shop. So the, um, the room when it describes, so I already described earlier how everything was just like dirty and gross. And of course they're in a parole neighborhood, which is a poor neighborhood, which is just not kept up at all. And so it describes that there's like, you know, rats running across, there's bugs, there's a mattress that they're laying on and, you know, sleeping with each other. And there's just bugs crawling over it. It just, it literally makes you just want to like shudder the thought of how gross it is. There's just filth everywhere. Um, but when they're there, you know, of course they're spending time with each other. They're reading this book that O'Brien gave them. At one point, um, Julia is able to sneak coffee and chocolate and bread up and they have those which those are like luxuries um at one point she gets a hold of a dress and makeup and it makes a reference earlier in the book that the only people that wear makeup are mostly just prostitutes um but she wanted to look pretty so she put on you know red lipstick and blush and said i wanted to look i wanted to be normal i want to look pretty for you so that kind of goes, I feel like goes back to the kind of the 1950s time, even though this was published before that, where women were expected that if they were good enough or pretty enough, that they would have on full face of makeup, a dress, you know, look extremely perfect. And that was important to her to look pretty. And I didn't, I, that was another part that really bothered me with how her acting like that. Um, so anyways, the reason they picked this shop was because they were told by the shop owner that there were no telescreens and no microphones, which was very common in a parole neighborhood. They really didn't care about the poor. They let the poor do whatever they want. Um, they didn't care about them. They were able to have as many children as they wanted. It's just kind of you put them over in a corner and you forget about them. So they would go up there, but they had to spend, you know, short periods of time because the parole neighborhoods were still monitored by like helicopters and the thought police. Um, they would have to take different ways there, different days, different times to really make sure that they were not caught going there together. So suddenly 
one day they're there and they're spending time and they accidentally fall asleep and spend way too long there. And when they wake back up, they find out that the, there's a picture in the room and it's actually a telescreen. And so they've been being recorded this whole time they're there. So they're captured by the thought police and they were actually turned in by the antique shop owner who was secretly a thought police agent. They're then escorted to the Ministry of Love, which is where people go. Um, I explained earlier, that's where arrested people go. And Winston is there to be re-educated to better align his perceptions with the party. And so that makes you think. So I'm going to stop right there. I don't want to give anything away after that. The book goes on from there. But it. I hope you're thinking like, well, what happens to Winston and Julia? Are they successful with the resistance? Um, are they not? Do they die? Do they live? I don't want to tell you what happens. You got to read it for yourself. Um, but this book is very scary to think about how these people are living and how they're um, just okay with being controlled, monitored, um, they're in war all the time. There's bombs always going off in the parole neighborhood. Um, they have hate week where literally the main part is to hate these other provinces and countries and they just promote hatred and war. And it's honestly, it's horrible. It sounds like a horrible place to live. And it's the exact definition of government control. The government controls everything that you do, everything that you eat, your how much you're paid. Literally, there's a part where it talks about the high, middle, and low classes. And um, I'm going to go ahead and read that actually real quick. Um, because I feel like in society now, we really concentrate heavily on... Um, what class you're in. And um, I don't, I feel like people don't really fully understand that we all unfortunately cannot be on the same level in reference to, you know, pay and what we do. There has to be people who are more successful than others. And that needs to be the choice of people who want to work hard enough um, in reference to, you know, what they want to do. So let me, let me get that pulled up here real quick. So this is a part of the book that they read the theory of practice and oligarchical collectivism. So this is chapter one, ignorance is strength. Throughout recorded time and probably since the end of the Neolithic age, there have been three kinds of people in the world, the high, the middle, and the low. They have been subdivided in many ways. They have borne countless different names and their relative numbers, as well as their attitude towards one another, have varied from age to age. But the essential structure of society has never altered. Even after enormous upheavals and seemingly irrevocable changes, the same pattern has always reasserted itself, just as a gyroscope will always return to equilibrium, however far it is pushed one way or another. The aims of these groups are entirely irreconceivable. The aim of the high is to remain where they are. The aim of the middle is to change places with the high. The aim of the low, when they have an aim, for it is an unbiding characteristic of the low that they are too much crushed by drudgery to be more than intermittently conscious of anything outside their daily lives, 
is to abolish all distinctions and create a society in which all men shall be equal. Thus, throughout history, a struggle which is the same in its main outlines recurs over and over again. For long periods, the high seems to be securely in power, but sooner or later, there always comes a moment when they lose either their belief in themselves or their capacity to govern efficiently or both. They are then overthrown by the middle, who enlists the low on their side by pretending to them that they are fighting for liberty and justice. As soon as they have reached their objective, the middle thrusts the low back into their old position of servitude and themselves become the high. Presently, a new middle group splits off from one of the other groups or from both of them and the struggle begins over again. Of the three groups, only the low are never even temporarily successful in achieving their aims. It would be an exaggeration to say that throughout history, there had been no progress of a material kind. Even today, in period of decline, the average human being is physically better off than he was a few centuries ago. But no advance in wealth, no softening of manners, no reform or revolution has ever brought human equality a millimeter near. From the point of view of the low, no historic change has ever meant much more than a change in the name of their masters. So I feel like lately there's been a lot of um, emphasis on that in our current society. And I feel like that's just not the right way of looking at it. So I, I mean, me personally, I would be considered probably middle class. Um, but the problem is that the government in this book tries to keep the low class low any way that they can. So, you know, controlling where they live, um, not giving them any opportunities for advancement because everything is controlled, food, pay, work, you're told where to work. And so it gives them no opportunity to ad try to advance themselves, to make their own life better than what it is. And that's the problem with this government control in this book is that even if you wanted to be a better person and make more money and, you know, do something yourself, you're not allowed to, that you're just not. You're told what to do. You're told where to go. And that's it. So like me, for example, doing this podcast, having my bookshop, you know, doing all of these things, I would not allowed to be, do, would not allowed to be do them, doing those things. I would be told I have to go home, go to work, come back home. And that's it. I would not be allowed to do anything extra because I would be called a thought criminal because I have my own opinions and my own um, desires and thoughts. And those are illegal because, you know, the Ministry of Truth controls opinions, the news, you know, your thoughts, how you're supposed to react, what you hate, what you like. They control all of that. And I cannot imagine living in a world where I would be controlled that way. I, you know, everybody is entitled to their own opinions and beliefs. And the fact that in this 1984 world, the ministry of truth just creates everything is just scary. This whole entire book was scary to me. And one of the things in our book club, they asked is, would you read it again? <laughs> and I said, no. And it's partly because it was just so unsettling. I feel like I would read it again because I do feel like I missed a lot in reference to what Orwell is talking about. And I probably would read it again, but I would not read it for pleasure. This is to me, this is a pure education 
on what I do not want my world to be. <laughs> so this is a very powerful book. And I'm sure it was very powerful whenever it was published as well. Um, people always say history repeats itself in some way or another. So there's a reason why Orwell decided that he wanted to write this because of what was happening with, you know, the, the Soviet Union and World War II and all of that stuff. That's where he got all of his inspiration from and did it almost as like a warning to readers and people of the future. Do not let our world become this way. And so this, I know that the same thing with Fahrenheit 451, they're both very powerful books. I recommend that everybody reads them. Um, if you have children that are old enough to read on this level, you know, this book does have sex in it. And there are parts where he says like, essentially he wants to, he hates Julia so much. He wants to rape her. So make sure your child isn't, is old enough to kind of take those things and fully understand. Um, honestly, I feel like even with those notions, a child should read it at a young age. Um, I didn't read either of those, these books in high school. I wish I would have. I have a lot of friends that did. Um, but it should be a part of their daily curriculum. You know, it's, it's so good for their, just their health and their mindset. It's just important to read it. So make sure people read it. If you're an adult and you have not read it yourself, I really recommend picking it up and reading it. Um, so that's basically all that I have. And I hope you guys have a really great Thanksgiving and I hope you look forward to a little bit more lightheartedness in my next episodes. Again, we're going to do some Christmas theme stuff. Um, so that is 1984 by George Orwell. And I hope that you enjoyed it. Have a good day. See you next time.